in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your spirit to be with us today as we try to decipher some of the complex wording of the prophet Isaiah. But help us to get the essence of the message rather than just understanding the words. Because that is where the heart, your heart, is really in the message. So give us the courage, the strength to set aside our own preconceived notions and open our minds and hearts to what it is that you want us to hear through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. With the material that we're going to be covering today, we actually start with something new, you might say. And this is where third Isaiah begins. From chapter 56 through the end, or chapter 66, is what is often referred to as third Isaiah. Uh, we don't know like the other two. We don't know much about him personally. In fact, we actually hear and read less about him as an individual uh, than we did of the other two. But nevertheless, we know that not only because of the time period being covered by his writings, but by the tone and the style of the writings, uh, we are entering sort of new territory, you might say. Now, we have to kind of set the scene uh, of this new territory, and that is we are now back in Israel, in Judah, uh, primarily Jerusalem, which is the center and the capital of the province of Judah at the time, and still is for that matter. Uh, it's roughly, and we don't know for sure, but it is roughly... Uh, 20 or 30 years, you might say, after the original release of the Israelites uh, from Babylon. So if you consider that the beginning of the exodus from Babylon started in the year 539 B.C., so we're talking about the very end of the 6th century B.C., all right? or possibly the beginning of the 5th century. Um, times are a lot different than what the exiles had expected. As we've said before, when they came back to Jerusalem, they found the city destroyed, uh, the infrastructure pretty much uh, gone, because those who were left behind that were not taken to Babylon uh, were the old, the elderly, the infirm, uh, children, etc., etc., who were incapable of maintaining the infrastructure or doing much in the way of rebuilding. So you can imagine what would happen to any city. And what comes to mind is my own hometown of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, when people start abandoning it, Detroit as as uh, one point in time, was the third largest city in the United States. Uh, today, it probably isn't a, 
much of anything. And, and it's, it's a sad situation when you go there to see uh, the deterioration of it because so many people left and just abandoned their homes and the city had to kind of tear them down because they were uh, a fire hazard. But that's beside the point. Uh, getting back to Israel, we have the same kind of problem there. And what happens, of course, you have two factions. You have the people that never left versus the people that came back, some of whom had never been to Israel before. Remember, over a period of 50 or 60 years in Babylon, a whole new generation or two generations of people have grown up. And they had no relationship or understanding of the prior Jerusalem and its temple and the glories and so forth uh, that came down from Solomon. So you have these two factions who uh, resented each other in a way, you might say. Um, there's this resentment of the people who left and now are coming back by the people who never left. And you have the yin and the yang here going back and forth. In addition to that, those people who were born in Babylon and came back really had no great understanding of Judaism unless they partook of the synagogue system that was developed while they were in Babylon. And that's highly unlikely because as young people are even today, they gravitate to the new and the, you know, the, the um, <coughs> imagination things. Uh, people today are, young people today are more interested in uh, the mobile devices that are prevalent today than they are of reading, reading out of books. I mean, paper books, you know, when they've got uh, the Kindle or the Kindle Fire or the iPad or something of that kind which is so much easier. So you can understand, in a way, how these things could come about. But nevertheless, God is still in charge, and he wants them to know that, in charge in such a way that, as a father is in charge of a family who is, uh, let's say, dysfunctional in a way, but nevertheless, he doesn't, uh, relinquish his responsibilities, he still loves the family. And he has a purpose of keeping that family together. God's purpose in keeping the family together is because his plan of salvation has not progressed to the point uh, where he can bring the major part of that. And that, of course, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is divine son. But as the readings will tell you, particularly the commentary, that the plan of salvation has been delayed because what's happening in this time period now, from the beginning of the 5th century down to the time of Christ, the prophets have, are beginning to fade out simply because the Jewish people are not listening to them or obeying them. And so 
God is sort of withdrawing gradually his support of the people through the prophets. What has happened in its place now, which established or began while they were in Babylon, is the priestly class and the priesthood, which was not important before they went to Babylon. What was important before they went to Babylon was the monarchy. That has totally disappeared. That's been wiped out partly uh, by the conquering of Jerusalem and Judah by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Say that with a couple beers and you're really having trouble. Uh, The monarchy has disappeared. The leadership that was in vogue for almost 500 years is totally gone and discredited. And so somebody has to pick up. And you'll find, I think, that that happens in any large group of people who are thrown together for whatever reason. Gradually, somebody begins to take charge. All right? So it was the priestly class who sort of grew up out of the synagogue system. And over a period of time, it was the high priest who became the most important part or or leader within the Jewish people, even down to the time of Christ. The Romans, when they came in, reestablished a king in the form of Herod. Uh, But Herod at the time, and this is Herod Agrippa, this would be the son of Herod the Great, uh, was despised by the people. He was only a figurehead there. The real leader was the high priest. So all of those changes have taken place in this 500 years, partly because God has withdrawn his support. And that's why the last major writings in the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi, who was, uh, you might say, in vogue or popular around the second century B.C. In between the time of the Babylonian exiles and the time of Christ, Israel went through a lot of turmoil because first they were under the domination, you might say, of the Persian king Cyrus and his descendant. There was only one descendant there. Uh, And then the Greeks came in. The Greeks, of course, conquered the Persians and all of the Mid-Eastern countries uh, and North Africa. And of course, they lasted until the year 313 um, BC. Uh, no, I'm sorry. They lasted until the year 63 BC when the Romans uh, conquered the Greeks. So never was Israel or the Jewish people free after Babylon. They were always under the domination of someone. Um, And that lasted, of course, until the year 70 A.D., and then they were dispersed again totally when Jerusalem was destroyed along with the temple. 
And that was God's way of saying, enough is enough. You're totally ignoring me. You're totally uh, forgetting where you came from, what I've done for you for 2,000 years. I've taken care of you, etc., etc. And so I've had enough. You despised all of the prophets, the judges that I sent before. You even despised and rejected my son and murdered him. I've had enough. And God withdraws his support of the Jewish people in there. And it was recognized by the destruction of the temple in the year 70 A.D. Now, I know I'm getting ahead uh, a lot, but it helps to understand what the focus is. Where are we trying to go with all of this information that Israel, I'm sorry, that Isaiah is giving us? What is the purpose or the ultimate objective? The ultimate objective, of course, is to establish a base, you might say a theological base, but more important, to establish a vehicle for the word of God to get out to all of the world. That was the focus and the main point of establishing the Jewish people in the first place, is to establish a just and sincere, loving community that would shine a light to the rest of the nations and say, look how God is taking care of these people. Why don't we join with them and become like them? The Jewish people refuse to do that. They refuse to go out and project their beliefs, their religious ideas, project the benefits that they have received from the God of heaven to other nations. Instead, they became an exclusive community. They made rules that prevented them uh, from intermarriage, from going out, even at the time of Christ. Christ was criticized for even entering a Gentile home, and more so of eating with the Gentiles. That is totally in opposition of what God wanted them to do. And so that is why we study the Old Testament to see what is it that God really wanted of these people, and how can we because that responsibility of going out to all the nations has now fallen upon the Church of Jesus Christ, the Roman Catholic Church. So that now has become our responsibility. And we are the ones that have to pick up the message that the Jewish people refuse to pick up and transmit to everyone else. Does that make sense? Chet?
Yes. Yes. What 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 Chet is saying, and I'm repeating that more or less for uh, the benefit of the people who are getting this through the CD. Right. What Chet is saying is that in times of trials and times of trouble, people generally go to God. All right. And why didn't the Jewish people did that? They did, in a sense. They said, okay, God, we'll do anything you say, but we'll do it our way. And that's still the case. You know, they feel, and I I could bring you in a book that I just finished reading uh, on Judaism, uh, where they are saying that they feel that they're honoring God by fulfilling the laws. You see, they're making up their own concepts rather than asking God, how do you want us to do this? Or what do you want us to do? Etc., etc. So, I can't answer your question with any um, clear explanation because there really isn't any. You see, they feel that what they're doing is honoring God. Now, Let's set that aside for a moment because anybody who feels that he is honoring God by following a particular uh, path is, and if he follows it sincerely and so forth, in a way God is accepting that. Not as God would particularly like, but he's not throwing it out with the bathwater, so to speak. All right. Uh, I know that's sometimes difficult to believe, but a lot of people put down non-Catholic Christian denominations. Um, and the point is, you can't do that. It is unfair, because if those people who are sincerely following Christ in a non-Catholic form and are doing it sincerely out of love of God, God accepts that. Maybe not in the same way or to the same degree that he would for the same person following uh, the Catholic form of uh, faith. But nevertheless, God does not throw out any good just because that person is not following the rules or the format of the Catholic Church. So, there is so much that we have to learn about our faith and God, and that is why we study Scripture. But you have to study it by digging down into it. You can't just read the surface words. Remember, I've said many times, and will always say, it is not the words in the Bible, it is the message that's important. Not the words, but the message. Remember, the people that wrote the Bible are all human beings, like all of us here. 
and they used their own words. They were inspired, but many times the wording gets a little garbled up in translation between God's inspiration to that individual and that individual's interpretation that comes out in the form of the written word. Not that it's wrong. It might be a little bit shaded by his or her interpretation, as we will see in readings today in Isaiah. Isaiah liked to um, embellish, you might say, uh, some of the message. And so you got to be a little careful on some of that. But nevertheless, the message is far more important than the words. And that's what takes us a little bit of time in digging into what we're going to be reading. Any questions before we begin? Yes, Karen? Totally ignored. Okay. Yeah. No, it's many, many times. And not only by Isaiah. We're going to be reading something from Ezekiel in a way that's that fits in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's begin uh, page 148, chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, observe what is right, do what is just, for my salvation is about to come, my justice about to be revealed. Happy is the one who does this, whoever holds fast to it, keeping the Sabbath without profaning it, keeping one's hand from doing any evil. The foreigner joined to the Lord should not say, remember the foreigner. This would be people who came back to Judah from Babylon who were not Jewish people. And there were many of them. The same thing happened at the time of Moses when the, when Moses brought the Jewish people out of Egypt. Many others came with them. Right, And though they were not Jews, they were accepted into the fold. But they had limitations. They could not enter the synagogues or the temples and a few other things. God is saying here, the foreigner joined to you, to the Lord, should not say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Nor should the eunuch say, See, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. Just as I've said before. Even though a eunuch, and you know, I'm sure, what a eunuch is in this case, which was a very common thing, uh, particularly in the household of kings and nobles and very wealthy people, it was more or less to protect the women. Um, Ouch. (laughs) Uh, 
what he's saying here is those people outside the realm of Judaism, though although they were now living in accordance with uh, Jewish laws and traditions, they were accepted as well and should not be put aside. To the uniques who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and who holds fast to my covenant, I will give him, them, or him, in my house, and without my walls, a monument and a name. A monument and a name means sort of uh, like a placard. There's some right outside uh, the walls here in this building. Uh, a monument and a name, a placard. That kind of tells what these people are and what they're doing and who they are and so forth and so on. As it says down below, the name of the Jewish um, the Jew, hmm? yeah, in reference to the Holocaust, the name of the monument in, Jew, in Jerusalem to the Holocaust people is called in Judaism a monument and a name because of the uh, many families who were wiped out. And I'm sure that you probably know, in Judaism, keeping um, traditions of families down through the ages is very important. Genealogy began with the Jewish people. Way back, they used to keep laws uh, and records of families because it was important that they remain within their tribal traditions. The four, um, the twelve tribes of Israel. You could not even marry outside of your particular tribe. You could not go out and beyond that for any reason at all. And genealogy started in order to keep track of who was from what tribe. That was all lost at the time of Babylon because those records were kept in the temple and those were destroyed. Remember, when any conquering nation would go in and take over another nation, one of the first things they would do would be destroy the records because that became, uh, that was destroying their identity. A very important part of conquering in those days. Better than sons and daughters, an eternal name which shall not be cut off, will I give them. And foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord, to become his servants, and who keep the Sabbath. That's the important part of this. Who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, and hold fast to my covenant, them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. This is the first time uh, that we have this idea of house of prayer other than the temple. Okay? And that, that came out of the synagogue uh, system that was established or began in Babylon. Okay? Because a synagogue is, and still is today, a house of prayer. It's also a house of study, 
but prayer and study are combined. All right. Remember, that is the phrase that Jesus used when he was overturning the money changers. Uh, when we celebrate that on Palm Sunday, uh, that is generally read as part of the gospel, uh, the scene where Jesus is disturbed by the money changers who are uh, charging far higher prices, etc., for uh, the exchange of money from Roman and uh, Jewish street money to temple money. He, of course, turns over the tables and he said, my house is a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Oracle of the Lord, voice of the Lord God, who gathers and dis- the dispersed of Israel. Again, the, the word dispersed here is to referring to the diaspora, the people who fled to other parts of the world in fear of the uh, conquering of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar back in 592 B.C. and 597 and 587. There were two times that he did that. Others and let's go on to the next page. Others will I gather to them besides those already gathered. Let's stop for a moment and see what is involved in what we've just read here. I know I've interrupted many times, but there are three points really in this section that are important to understanding where we're going with all of this, okay? First of all, it is living the faith. Living the faith means that it's not something that you put on on the Sabbath, whether that be Saturday or Sunday. It is something that you live on a day-by-day basis and becomes part of your lifestyle. That is something that we today, as Catholics, should really think about. Are we reflecting our Catholic beliefs through our lifestyle. The second point that is being made here is the sincere worship of the Sabbath. Not of the Sabbath, but on the Sabbath. Worship of God on the Sabbath, whether it be Saturday uh, or Sunday. So many people, and I hear this frequently, particularly on Holy Days, They go to Mass to fulfill an obligation. Period. And if that's the only reason that you go, then you may as well forget about it because God is not going to accept that. I wish the church would not use that word obligation because it is misleading. We should go to church to worship God at least one day a week, simply because he is God. Simply because of what he has done for us. Given us 
eternal life or the chance for eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if we go simply to fulfill an obligation and throw our money into the basket and that is it, that's all that's necessary, there's not going to be any benefit out of that. And those will be the same people who complain, I get nothing out of going to church. Right? It's because they put nothing into it. That's so unfortunate, but you you see it all the time. You hear it all the time. It's uh, terribly unfortunate, I, I think. The whole idea of going to celebrate the Eucharist, I don't even like calling it the Mass anymore because the word Mass has absolutely no meaning. It came out of the Latin Ita Miseus, which is actually go, the Mass is over. All right. Uh, that's where it came from, and it's been, you know, a common usage ever since English was spoken, you might say. Uh, you will find now that most priests and almost all religious uh, writing uses the, the phrase the celebration of the Eucharist, because that is what they're trying to get people to see. It is a celebration of thanksgiving. That's what the word Eucharist means, thanksgiving. And it is always directed to God the Father through Jesus Christ. So many people totally forget that, that all prayer, particularly the great prayer of the Eucharist, is to offer something to the Father our Pledge of Allegiance. And all prayer should be directed to the Father through Jesus Christ. Also, it could be through Mary or the saints. But the idea is all prayer should be directed to the Father. The third point here that is being made is identity. The point that is being made on the importance of the Sabbath by the prophet in his writings is to get the people to recognize that the Jewish people were the first and only people at that time to have a schedule of life, a schedule of how they lived their life, that was attuned to their faith. Other forms of religion, if you could call it that, the worship of pagan gods and so forth, had no timetable, you might say. was not regulated except perhaps uh, by the moon and that kind of thing. Uh, The Jewish people set aside the last day of the week as a day of worship for the many benefits that God gave them. And the prophet is saying, don't profane that by ignoring that, because not only are you offending God, 
but you are losing your identity as a nation in the face of other nations, which you are trying to attract. They are without knowledge. They are all mute dogs, unable to bark, dreaming, reclining, loving their sleep. Yes, the dogs have a ravenous appetite. They never show um, satiety. I had to stop and think, how do you pronounce that? Huh? Satiety. Yeah. It comes from the word satious. You know, it means filled up. Yeah. But I had to look it up in the in the dictionary and it's satiety. Uh yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is a sort of a process, okay. Yeah. Shepherds who have no understanding uh, all have turned their own way, each one covetous for grain, or for gain, I should say. Come, let me bring wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, they say, and tomorrow will be like today, or even greater. As uh, Scarlet would say, well, tomorrow is another day. Okay. Now, that last part is sort of mocking what these people are saying or at least thinking. Okay. Um, what, he's, what the prophet is saying here, what God is saying through the prophet here, is that the people, the leaders of the Jewish people, and of course their leadership was not a strong thing yet because it all had uh, fallen apart with the overthrow of the Jewish people uh, by the Babylonians and then those people in Babylon who sort of developed a little bit of leadership that wasn't accepted originally by the people when they returned uh, and so you had a weak form of leadership but even that is being criticized here because it is not leading the people in the way God wants them to be led. <clears throat> let me read. Let me read from the prophet Ezekiel the same kind of warning here, because it helps to understand. It helps to understand that all of the prophets of the same time period have pretty much the same message. How could it be otherwise? But it's important to realize that they did. Okay. Now, Ezekiel was one of the prophets who was actually taken to Babylon and was probably, we don't know for sure, but probably the one who sort of encouraged and started the synagogue system that is teaching the people in little house groups. Okay. Um, if you go to uh, I lost my place I'm sorry uh, I thought it was 34 but
Yes, it is 34. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. It's rather long, so I'm not going to read all of it, okay? It says, thus the word of the Lord came to me. Now, this is Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. To these words, prophesy, in these words, prophesy to them. Um, and thus says the Lord God, woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been pasturing themselves. Should not shepherds rather pasture the sheep? And of course, we're talking about people in this case. You have fed of their milk, worn their wool, and slaughtered the fatlings. But the sheep you have not pastured. You did not strengthen the weak, nor heal the sick, nor bind up the injured. You did not. In other words, criticizing, just as Isaiah has, of the leadership not developing a form of worship that was acceptable to God and in line with the teachings of Moses. So, Ezekiel goes on to say, I'm skipping a little bit here, but he goes on to say, For thus says the Lord God, I myself will look after and tend my sheep, as a shepherd tends his flock when he finds himself among his scattered sheep. So will I tend my sheep. I will rescue them from every place where they were scattered. That is the diaspora again. Uh, and I will bring them back to their own country and pasture them upon the mountains of Israel in the place um, in all of the inhabited places. In good pastures I will pasture them. And on the mountains heights of Israel shall be their grazing, grazing ground. And then he goes on to say, I will put a spirit within them and make them understand I'm sort of paraphrasing but nevertheless uh, and I will make them read and develop uh, a religion that is acceptable to me and they will be my people and I will be their God that is the first reference that we have in the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit okay? because that Prophecy could not have been fulfilled prior to the time of Christ. Um, I lost my place, Gene. So, as I've said, all of the prophets, when you talk about uh, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, 1, 2, and 3, all really had the same message because they lived at pretty much the same time over a, you know, period of a couple hundred years scattered. But nevertheless, the times uh, were pretty rough at that time. Okay. Let's go on to chapter 57. In 57, we're talking again about idols. I said once before that I wasn't going to bring that subject up again. I'd forgotten about chapter 57. The just have perished, but no one takes it to heart. The steadfast are swept away, while no one understands. 
Yet the just are taken away from the presence of evil and enter into peace. They rest upon their couches, the sincere who walk in integrity. In a way, that sort of is a good transition from uh, the previous section uh, to what we're going to be reading now. Um, those who have perished, that is the just, um, or the steadfast, who are languishing and dying, you might say, of either starvation or lack of protection, excuse me, or whatever it might be, uh, they are ending up in heaven because they are just. They are living uh, a good life. But the others uh, will perish. But you, draw near, you children of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Wow. Uh, against whom do you make sport? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not rebellious children, deceitful offspring? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree. You who emulate children in the wadis. Now, emulate, of course, is killing your own children, thinking, well, whatever. Yeah. The wadis are um, creeks, we would call them. Creeks or small rivers, all right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, human sacrifice. Uh, you who emulate children in the wadis or among the cliffs of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the wadi is your portion. They, they are your allotment. Indeed, you poured out a drink offering to them and brought up grain offerings. With these things, should I be pleased? Remember, these are pagan rituals that were picked up in Babylon and still brought back. This idea of, yes, Lord, we'll do whatever you say, but we'll do it our way, you know, is sort of a a two-faced way of trying to worship, and God is not accepting that. Yes. Yes. No, not as a nation, but these are, you know, individuals. Yeah. Well, no, not in this case, because you... This was done more or less as part of a pagan ritual, because they were they were yeah they were hedging their bets you might say by on one side they were trying to be Jews and the other side they were following pagan rituals that they had picked up someplace else. It, it's hard to explain that because it's hard for us today to imagine anybody doing anything like that, and yet we know that those things are happening in a way. What about all the the child trafficking that you hear today? Uh, You know, it's the same kind of thing. They're not killing the the children, but they're selling them off for illicit and all kinds of purposes. Same 
same thing in a way. In a way. Um, I think you got the whole idea of this particular section here. Uh, it is so gruesome in a way that I kind of like to just move on. Let's move over to uh, verse 14 on the next page, 152. And I say, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle from my people's way. He's talking now to the leaders of the Jewish people or those that are developing leaders, you might say. For thus says the high and lofty one, the one who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with a contrite and lowly of spirit. In other words, he is a God of all, the high and the low. Makes no difference to God as long as they are faithful. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the crushed, for I will not accuse forever, nor always be angry. For without me their spirits fail. The life breath that I have given, because of their wicked avarice, I grew angry. I struck them, hiding myself from them in wrath. But they turned back, following the way of their own heart. And I saw their ways. But I will heal them. I will lead them and restore full comfort to them and to those who mourn for them, creating words of comfort. Peace, peace to those who are far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot be still. Its waters cast up mire and mud. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. So, God is constantly, constantly calling people back to him. Uh, we have that out of the prophet Joel, uh, the song which we hear, come back to me with all your heart. Uh, those are words almost verbatim out of the prophet Joel, which who is uh, reflecting the love of God that he has for all his faithful people. Remember, at the heart of all of this is God's plan of salvation, that he's still trying to work through these Jewish people. At, up to this time, he has now spent 1,500 years of time from the beginning of Abraham up to the Babylonian captivity and beyond uh, of trying to gather these people and form them into a nation who will be a light to other nations. And, of course, that never came to be, even up to the time of Christ. And so it was Christ then who reestablished a group of people called the Catholic Church, or Christianity in general, who has now be given, has been given uh, the responsibility of carrying that light to all people. And that's why we have missionaries 
and people that are constantly going out trying to attract others, not only uh, people in uh, pagan or foreign countries, but people within our own country who are not believers as yet. Did you all get that? Uh, Ezekiel 36, 27. Yeah. That's where Ezekiel talks about and criticizes the shepherds or the leaders of Israel and promises that God himself would become their shepherd. And that is, of course, through the Holy Spirit, which, of course, could not be released to the people until after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that is the Spirit's role within the church today. God's plan of salvation is not totally complete until the end of time when all mankind is then given the opportunity to return to the Father in heaven. The climax of the plan of salvation was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, obviously. But the benefits of that are still operative, you might say, through the Holy Spirit. And that, for those of you who have that uh, diagram that I've given out many times, I don't know if I have a copy of it here, uh, but that's what it shows This this one, yes, this one here. You have the time and role of the Father through creation. You have the time and the role of Jesus Christ for salvation. You have the time and the role of the Holy Spirit for sanctification. That's how we often look at the Trinity. Creation, salvation, sanctification. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the purpose. And this whole idea of God's plan of salvation does not become complete until the end of time. But... The climax was God's uh, accepting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go on to chapter 58. Cry out full-throated and unsparingly. Lift up your voice like a trumpet blast. Proclaim to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and desire to know my ways. And I'm adding here, but they want to do it in their way. Like a nation that has done what is just and not abandon the judgment of their God. They ask for me, um, they ask of me for just judgments. Um, 
that that kind of I'm full of aggression this morning. I know that, but when you read the Psalms, there's 150 Psalms in any Bible. There's still 150 Psalms. Some of them are numbered slightly different than others, but that's beside the point. There's 150 Psalms in everybody's Bible. Only seven of them are considered penitential Psalms. Um, I don't have all the numbers, but the one my favorite is Psalm 51. But nevertheless, all of the others are always asking God for something. And what bothers me when I read some of those is they are never acknowledging their own faults and failures. They think, and of course all the Psalms were written by Jewish people way back. Um, The book of Psalms was put together in about the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. We're not quite sure. But we know that many of the Psalms were written long before that, and the book of Psalms is just a collection of those commonly used prayers or songs, which most of them were. All right. But so many of them are prayers, I call them gimme prayers. Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. Uh, and if you give me this, I will do this. Well, that's not the kind of relationship he wants. It's not a give and take type of thing. It's a give all from one side to a give all from the other side. Not a give and take. You do this and I'll do that. But if you don't do this, or implying, if you don't do this, I'm not going to do that. That's not the kind of relationship God wants. They ask of me, me, that is God, just judgments. They desire to draw near to God. Why do we fast? This is the Jews saying this now. Why do we fast, but you do not see it? Afflict ourselves, but you take no note. This is God's answer. See, on your fast day, you carry out your own pursuits and drive all your labors. See, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Do not fast as you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is this the manner of fasting I would choose? A day to afflict oneself? I'm digressing again, but in the early years of monasticism, Christian monasticism, the monks used to beat themselves, you know, with chains and all kinds of stuff. Uh, After this was read, they began to think differently. And God does not necessarily want physical punishment of self as a penance. He would rather that you take the time and effort to help someone else and offer that up rather than a physical flagellation of some kind. And that comes from the statement right here. Is this the manner of fasting I would choose? A day to afflict oneself? 
to bow one's head like a reed and lie upon sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not rather the fast that I choose? And now he's offering his ideas. Releasing those bound unjustly, untying the thongs of the yoke, setting free the oppressed, breaking off every yoke. Is it not sharing your bread with the hungry, bringing the afflicted and the homeless into your your house, clothing the naked when you see them, and not turning your back on your own flesh? Then your light then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your wound shall quickly be healed. Your vindication shall go before you. You won't need to ask for forgiveness because the Lord will be out there waiting for you to forgive. And the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry for help. And he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among the accusing finger and malicious speech, if you lavish your food on the hungry and satisfy the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall become like midday. Then the Lord will guide you always and satisfy your thirst in parched places and will give strength to your bones and you shall be like watered gardens like a flowering spring whose water never fails your people shall rebuild the ancient ruins the foundations from ages past you shall rise up repairer of the breach they shall call you restorer of ruined dwellings this sounds and is often used as a reading during Lent, which of course we are in now, to get us to think about our own actions. As it says here, God has not asked you to give up any good thing. He's asking you to look at doing something positive for others that will help you of course always and will be looked upon as a blessing and he will be waiting for you when you come sort of like confession if you go down to the commentary in this section I'd like to read that because I think it is very important it begins briefly on the previous page um and I think it's a whole idea of fasting that a lot of people just shudder when they think about it. Okay, uh, As I said before, one lady said to me one day, all I have to hear is the word fasting and I am hungry. <clears throat> Jerusalem's restoration was not proceeding according to expectations. That's what we've always been saying. The people had been fasting to elicit God's mercy. Wrong reason. Good thing, but for a wrong reason. But to no avail. In early Judaism, fasting was not an ascetical practice. 
that is, a liturgical or, or a penitential practice. It was associated with mourning. The purpose of the fast that came into vogue during the Restoration, that is the time period that we're talking about now, was to move God to pity. Again, wrong reason. Jerusalem, um, to pity Jerusalem and hasten the day of its complete renewal. What the prophet decries here is not the practice of fasting, but the ignorance of those who engage in this practice for the wrong reason. After all that the people of Judah had been through, they still have not learned that God expects them to create and maintain a social, a society of justice and equity for all. The whole idea of justice and equity is missing from their objectives. Remember, doing a good thing for the wrong reason is still wrong. The performance of ritual actions, no matter how well-intentioned, is not a substitute for a so- such a society. As long as injustice, oppression, and internal conflicts plague Judah, the restoration will be stalled. God wants Judah to fast from injustice. God wants the people of means to share their food, clothing, and shelter, and their brothers and sisters with their brothers and sisters who lack them. When Judah becomes a society based on compassion rather than oppression, justice rather than injustice, the restoration will go forward. Until then, Judah can expect nothing but divine judgment of an unjust and uncaring society. God will honor a just society with a divine presence. And I couldn't have said it better, really. And, you know, if you go over to chapter 59 here, it says salvation is delayed. It is delayed in a way because they are not fulfilling the role that God expects of them. No, the hand of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Rather, it is your crimes that separate you from your God. It is your sins that make him hide his face so that he does not hear you. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with crime. Your lips speak falsehood and your tongue utter deceit. No one brings suit justly. No one pleads truthfully. They trust an empty plea and tell lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth malice. Well, this goes on and it's pretty harsh. Uh, but you get the idea. I want to move on because there are some good parts <laughs> In chapter 59. Let's go on to uh, the next page. 156. Verse 9. 
And that is why judgment is far from us and justice does not reach us. We look for light, as this is Isaiah speaking again. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, and we walk in gloom. Like those who are blind, we grope along the wall. Like people without eyes, we feel our way. We stumble at midday as if at twilight among the vigorous. We are like the dead, like bears, we all growl. I'm going to jump over because the rest of this is pretty much the same here. So the Lord saw this and was grieved, and that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one who appalled, no one, and was appalled that there was none to intervene. Then his own arm brought about victory, and his justice sustained them. He put on justice as his breastplate, victor, victory as a helmet on his head. He clothed himself with garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in a mantle of zeal. According to their deeds, he repays his enemies and requites his foes with wrath. To the coastlands he renders recompense. And those in the west shall fear the name of the Lord. For those in the east his glory coming like a pent-up steam. Um, what is going on here is that eventually order did come out of chaos. Eventually, things did start to straighten out. And we had a nation that actually did finally develop, but it was more God's doing than the Jewish people's doing. And he did it in spite of their lack of fidelity because he was still working on getting his plan of salvation through. And he had to really step in, as it says right here, and do some of this on his own. We have a number of good things that did come out of this uh, period of time. We had the books of the Old Testament pretty well uh, re edited, reorganized, and put into place in the form that we have them today. Uh, Over a period of time, uh, as I said earlier, the Book of Psalms and all of the wisdom books were written. The few Hebrew scriptures, those used and written in Hebrew alone, were translated into Greek. This was around the uh, beginning of the second century B.C. They were written into Greek, and that is what we use today because there were some modifications to accommodate the people who didn't understand or read Hebrew. Remember, it was the Jewish people who scattered to other parts of the world and established uh, their lives, their careers, uh, their families there in other parts of the world, but remained Jews, remained faithful Jews. But over a period of time, their children, etc., lost the use of the Hebrew as a spoken language and picked up Greek 
which became the Greek of the educated and, and the elite throughout all of that part of the world. Okay. And so they wanted the Hebrew scriptures to be translated into Greek in order to be able to read them and use them uh, effectively in their own religious observances. Judaism. They were still strong Jews, but uh, they couldn't read Hebrew or speak in Hebrew. In fact, in Israel today, Hebrew is not a spoken language. It is used primarily in religious observances. <coughs> Excuse me. Religious and legal observances, but not in uh, everyday use. That's English today. Excuse me. The old people who do speak in a foreign language, which will speak mostly Yiddish and not Hebrew. Okay. Um, there are a number of other good things that happen. I think we mentioned the idea of heaven uh, as we think of it today kind of got developed and gelled in this time period and the idea of a Messiah. Messiah, but somewhat mistaken understanding of the Messiah, but nevertheless, somebody who was going to lead them. Uh, the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew which when translated back into English means the anointed one of God. And when you say that in the Greek, it comes out Christos, or that's where we get the word Christ from. So the word Christ, somebody asked me one time if that was Jesus' last name. And I said, no, it's a title. It means the Holy One or the anointed one of God. And who else could fulfill that description except Christ himself? Okay. So a number of good things did come out. A number of tragic things too, primarily the Maccabean Wars. That is the wars with the Seleucid kings, uh, the descendants of uh, Alexander the Great. After Alexander the Great died at an early age, his empire broke up you know, among ten different uh, factions, you might say, five of them in North Africa, the other five in the Mideast. Uh, those ten, if you are familiar with the story of uh, the book of Daniel about the statue, the statue that had uh, a gold head, uh, a silver uh, upper torso, a bronze lower torso, and in other words, uh, pre precious metals at the top and then less precious uh, metals and materials as they went down, and the feet were made of iron mixed with clay. Uh, the feet, of course, the toes were often symbols of the ten uh, factions of the Greek Empire after Alexander died. Okay, One of those, Antiochus IV, is the one who established or, or started, you might say, uh, the war against the Maccabees, who were Jewish, faithful Jewish people, uh, in the middle of the second century BC. And the whole book of Maccabees, book one and two, as well as the book of Daniel, reflects that period of time. And the Maccabees won out the one time when Judaism finally won out with the help of God. So, 
a number of good things happened during that time. It wasn't all gloom and doom. Okay. Any questions? Well, I hope you got a, something out of today, uh, a lot of details. Chad? Da uh, David, no. Yes, well, all right. What Chef is saying there is, and he's questioning, uh, the fact that David is often credited with writing the book of Psalms. No, that is not the case. Because there are many Psalms in there that reference events or situations that David had no knowledge of. All right. But the idea is, as I think I mentioned this a week or two ago, and they, uh, you were probably asleep, of course, by that time. <laughs> Whenever an unknown person writes something in this ancient time period, they were not, they were just totally ignored because they were unknown. So what they would do is they would attach it and say that somebody else wrote it. So David is often given credit for writing a heck of a lot of stuff that he couldn't possibly have written. Uh, he may have established a lot, and we think it's David or uh, his son Solomon who encouraged the beginnings of the writings of Jewish history. But, no, I don't think that the book of... Uh, Psalms was written by David. Even though the first line on many of them say something about David. Kind of ignore that. It, you know, it doesn't make any difference one way or the other. All right. Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, in spite of all the Minutia that I threw out today, we ask that you help us to understand what it is that you want us to understand through Holy Scripture and whatever is said here. So we ask that you bless us and give us the understanding of what your message is for each of us. Give us the strength and the courage to not only listen, but understand, accept, and follow through on what you want from each of us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.